Genesis 2, 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right, if you brought your Bible with you, feel free to open to Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to start off today. Um, when I first started the series, we were going to talk about Genesis 3, and then we're going to talk about Genesis 2 and 3, and now we're going to talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because I wanted to make this uh, more challenging for myself. Well, we're beginning our series on the year of the Bible today, as Amanda mentioned and Justin mentioned, and uh, we're going to look from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation over the course of 2019 in order to help you understand how the Bible fits together. What is the overall storyline arc to what we read here in Scripture? Is it just a series of disconnected stories or observations that people had about God or the divine or the spiritual world? Or is there some overarching story that holds this together, that moves from a beginning to a middle to an end in a way that tells us something about God, about ourselves, and about the world that we're part of? I, I think there is an overarching story to the Bible. I think there's something important that we miss out on being human if we don't know that story and we don't live out of that story. So we're going to get into it today. So let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We could spend the whole time on that one verse because there's so much important and rich there. But as we look through this, this passage, I want to focus on two major ideas. The first one is that the Bible begins with the truth that creation is good and that humanity is a very good expression of God's creation and that God has an active role in bringing about the goodness of his creation. In verse 2, uh, the Bible continues, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And, and here's a phrase you'll hear a lot in the creation story. And the light was good. Right? Over and over as we read in Genesis 1, God describes what he has created as good. Um, and, and it's important that we're going to focus on the goodness of God's creation because we'll talk in the second part of the passage, in Genesis 3, about why the world so often doesn't feel good, why it feels like there's harm and pain 
and loss in the world. But before we get there, we start with the reality of the goodness of what God has made. Um, in these few verses at the beginning of chapter 1 and, and, and all throughout one, chapter 1, we see God as the active creator of the world, the one who continually brings about all that has been and ever will be. And in fact, in um, Colossians 1, we see that uh, God is not only created at one point in eternity past, but he continually upholds creation with his right hand. Now, often we ask, as we read chapter 1, uh, the question of, well, how did God do it? You know, we, we read the creation story, and then we go to biology class, uh, and we say, like, how do these two things connect? Like, how could God have created the world the way the Bible describes, and also have created the world the way that uh, science seems to describe? Are these two compatible in any way? And I feel a lot of anxiety talking about this topic because I'm not a scientist by training or by uh, interest. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Becca loves to tell a story, so I'll just tell it right here. Um, we were taking organic chemistry together in college, and she thought it was very cute that we were taking this class together. And I got up uh, two weeks into the class, and I just walked out of the class <laughs> and to the registrar and dropped organic chemistry. And just, I'm out. You know, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the humanities. Like, this, this is it. Um, and I, I know that some of you guys are scientists. There's a lot of engineers and medical doctors and uh, other scientists in our church who know a lot about this topic of how God's creation happens and have spent a lot of mental energy and, and, and faith energy thinking through how to integrate these things in your own soul. Um, and so I would love to be able to help you guys walk through that journey. Um, and I know some of you also feel a lot of tension about this in your own heart. Maybe you're in school right now or, or maybe you're older and you feel like you've had to choose one or the other between science and faith, um, and you've maybe chosen science in your heart, and you feel like, I go to church because I, I always have, or I feel obligated to in my relationships or whatever, um, but I wish someone could help me think through, is there a way that both the Bible and science can be true? And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that quickly in these next few minutes. This has been a, a topic over the last 150 years that Christians have wrestled with a lot, and they've come to a lot of different conclusions on. And I know in our church there are people who have come to different conclusions on this. Um, there's a few different ways that people reconcile this. One is what's called young earth creationism, which believes the Bible was created in six literal 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago, um, and that everything that appears to be older than that in the earth is either a misunderstanding of science or something that God has put there uh, when he created the world. So that's one view. Another view is called old earth creationism. That's the view that the world may be six billion years old, but that God created it along the pattern that we see in Genesis 1, that he used six periods of history in order to bring about creation, but that God continually did that actively on his own. A third view is what's called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is the view that God used evolutionary means in order to accomplish his creation goals. Um, which one's the right one? Uh, we can ask God, right, in heaven. Um, I, I, I can't tell you for sure. I wish I could. I wish I knew. Um, but Crossway published a thousand-page book on this topic last year with 34 different contributors, um, and that was addressing this one question. So there's no way we're going to resolve it in a couple minutes. But I do hope that uh, there's a couple things that we can do that will be helpful in this sermon. And the first one is to notice how God is described as being active in the process of creation. H however you want to integrate young earth creationism, old earth creationism, theistic evolution, uh, sometimes called fully gifted creationism, I hope that you'll hold on to at least, at least these realities, that God is an active part of his creation, right? He's not deistic. He, he doesn't stop acting 
at some point, that he continually upholds what he's made with his right hand, that he's intentional. As we read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we continually see that God intends to bring about his creation, and he delights over it as good. And that God does it uh, not only actively and intentionally, but he does it for a purpose, right? He, he invites people into the community that the triune God experiences. And he does it not into chaos, but into order. So however you want to reconcile the science and faith things, or if you don't want to reconcile them in your mind, I hope that you hold on to the activity of God in that. If you want to study more about this, if you want to think more about it, um, a couple options for you. Uh, one would be to be part of one of the life groups that uh, Amanda mentioned earlier to talk about this. Um, a second one would be to read some of these resources. Uh, the book I mentioned from Crossway that's really helpful is called A Critique of Theistic Evolution. Um, if you want to see a, a young earth creation view, you can go to the Discovery Institute online. Or if you want to see a theistic evolution argument, you can go to biologos.org. Um, and if you don't want to ever think about this again, you can go, go major in the humanities. That's another option. No, I, I, uh, I had a couple of people who are more scientifically inclined in the last couple of services encourage me, like, no, Bob, this really does matter, right? We, we want to integrate our faith with what we know. We don't want to just ignore part of what God has created because it's difficult to understand or hard. And, and I agree with that. So um, if you're younger and you want someone who's a mentor, who's thought through some of these scientific questions, if you're in an engineering program right now or you're in a biology program and you're really struggling with that, um, find me after the service. I'd love to help connect you with some of the Christians here who have wrestled with this, uh, who, are, who are a little older than you, who maybe know more about this and, and past organic chemistry uh, than I did. <laughs> well, here's, here's what I think I can't help you with, which is the why question. Why does the Bible describe the events of creation? One of the things you'll hear me say often as we go through this year of the Bible together is that uh, when we read the Bible, we ask the question, what did the original author intend to convey to the original audience? Would the original author, in this case probably Moses, intend to convey to the original audience, Israel during their time of exile? What, what did he want them to hear? It probably wasn't a response to Darwin's evolutionary theory that came uh, 4,000 years later. No, what did Moses want to communicate to them? That God is supreme over everything. As Amanda mentioned earlier, we read Genesis 1 and we notice continually that God is the one who has made everything. He's the one who is alone in being uncreated, who was there at the beginning. Now, in Moses' day, uh, the general belief was, was called polytheism, that there was a plurality of gods that each had their own domains and realms. They had their own origin stories. They had their own strengths and weaknesses. They had ways they could be defeated, offended. They had ways that uh, they were restrained and could be tricked and trapped. If this sounds like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's kind of similar. Um, I thought that'd get a bigger laugh from the high school group. I gotta be honest. Right. You already used it? Are you serious? Oh, come on, Jason. All right, Jason's in trouble. All right. No, that's fine. Uh, what else did you say? What other jokes did you say? You, you can't tell them all right now. All right. No, the, the goal... All right, let me, let me bring, bring myself back here. The Bible describes creation in order to remind us that God is supreme over all things, that rather than a polytheistic world where God is in competition, that he is the one who is over all and in control of all, and that he uses that control not to be spiteful or vindictive towards people, but to care for them. You know, some of the creation stories that existed during Moses' time saw the gods as creating humans either as a prank 
or a joke or in order to harm somebody else or to punish someone else. That creation maybe was an accident. But what Moses describes is entirely different than that. That all that exists doesn't exist as a prank or a joke, but for God's expression of love and care for others. And that creation is not hazardous, but it's good. And that God is the beginning of all of this. That the world around us uh, is not even the center point. And we're certainly not the center point, but that God is. Gosh, how often do we need to be reminded of that, that the world does not revolve around us? Well, as Genesis 1 progresses and it describes how God created everything in a good and intentional way, it culminates with humanity. At the end of chapter 1, on the sixth and final day, God creates us. This is what it says in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Humanity is created and it's very good and it's created for a purpose, which is to care for the creation it's entrusted with. Um, We are created for a reason. And that reason even includes caring for bugs. Did you You made that joke too, didn't you? Yeah, okay, great, that's great. Well, humans are described as the pinnacle of God's creation, but just one part of it, right? That they're made to have leadership over the creation of which they're a component part. Um, They're described as being continuous and different than all creation around them. That humans are not treated as if they've come out of the heavens on their own, but they're a continual part of the animal kingdom, which is why we're not surprised when humans are 98% the same DNA-wise as chimpanzees, but we're created on the same day as the animal kingdom, and yet they're different. Verse 27 says that we're made in the image of God, unique among all that was created. Uh, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is one of these tensions that Genesis invites us into, that we're different than the rest of creation. As humans, we're uniquely made in the image of God, and yet we're also in in continuity with the rest of of creation, that both men and women are made with the animals, but not an animal, image bearers of God himself. So what is the image of God? What what does that mean? Uh, There's a lot of theories about this. Some people think it's the soul. Some people think it's immortality. Some people think it's the capacity to love or to choose or to have a mind or to think about the future or to have consciousness or maybe some combination of some of those. Um, I'm hesitant to ascribe any one quality to being the image of God because the the Bible doesn't, but I I can be clear about one thing, which is that it applies to every person. The image of God applies to every human who ever existed, regardless of sex, right? Verse 27 makes that clear. Regardless of national origin, race, age, mental capacity, desirability, viability, we're at our best as Christians when we recognize that all people are made in God's image. Let Let me just be really clear about that. When Christians are at their best, they recognize the image of God in everyone. And it spurs us on to mission. It spurs us on to seeing people around the world who haven't heard of God, who haven't heard of Jesus, and we say, those people are made in the image of God. They matter to God. They may be very different than me. They may be, uh, they look different, act different, speak different, but they're made in God's image, so there is a burden I have to have them hear the gospel. It, it, when we recognize the image of God in others, it spurs us on to care for people that society disregards. It's why Mother Teresa cares for the dying and 
cared for the dying in Kolkata. It's why uh, John Derby, who was part of our church, went to India to work with those who are victims of human trafficking in Delhi for 14 years because he saw them as made in the image of God. Conversely, when we forget the image of God or when we limit it to a certain ethnicity or a certain generation or a certain mental capacity, we are harmful towards people who are made by God. We tolerate racism or sexism. We act as if certain people are beneath other people. We tolerate the destruction of life based on its viability or its desirability, as if it is not made in God's image, as if it only matters based on how desired it is by society. But what the Bible teaches clearly is that everyone is made in God's image and matters to God. And of course, that means you, right? That you are part of God's creation and you are made by God and you are very good. Uh, Later on in the service, we'll take uh, communion and everyone will come up front. It's a special thing we do in January each year. And I get the unique joy of getting to serve you guys communion and see the diversity of our church and generation and age and physical capacity and ethnicity and see that God in his goodness has made all of us in his image. Um, Some of us more desirable by society than others, some of us more powerful than others, all of us different. And yet in God's eyes, all image bearers of him. And it's good. And it's essential to focus on the goodness of creation at the beginning of the story because it tells us something about what God is like. Because creation is not uh, vindictive, because creation is not a prank that the gods are pulling on us the way the Greeks thought it was, but because creation is a good expression of God's character, it points us to the goodness of God himself. And this helps us to see God, right? When, When we see expressions of God's goodness In nature, in art, in music, in mathematics, we turn our hearts towards God. As 1 Timothy 4 says, Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. I wonder where you notice God's creation being good, or where you might do that this week. Where where do you notice God's creation is good? Maybe it's nature. Maybe the perfect wave reminds you of God's goodness. Uh, Maybe it's mathematics, a, a beautiful Uh, equation can remind you of God's order and the way that he made his creation well. Maybe it's carpentry, maybe it's uh, music. I I don't know what it is for you, but I hope that you'll reflect afresh this week and in this new year on noticing God's goodness. Because when we reflect on God's goodness, when, when we have a broad, expansive view of the goodness of God, it helps us to have a frame for understanding God's restrictions. Look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. How many trees do you think were in the garden? Like a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, I I don't know. Um, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, a lot of us tend to be like those Budweiser's Clydesdales, and all we focus on is what's restricted of us. And we become narrow, and we become closed-minded, and we become fixated on what we feel like we're missing out on. And my hope is that you and I will, will focus on the broad qualities of which God provides for us. One of the tragedies of Adam and Eve's story is they're in this beautiful, perfect setting, and they focus on what is missing in their life, or what they perceive of as missing. And I, but I wonder how often you do that, and I do that, right? Like, how often do we fixate on the narrow view of what we're losing, rather than the broad view of what God has given us? I hope that... Um, that you will grow this year in your appreciation 
of God's goodness as expressed in his creation so that you will be able to more delight in him. As we're going to see in the second half of the sermon, when we notice, when we fixate on God holding out on us or holding out goodness on us, it can be a driving force towards sin. But as the New Testament says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you to focus and notice on the good he gives us rather than the perception of what we're missing out on. All right, the second part of this passage, we're going to go into Genesis 3 here in a minute. We're going to talk about why a good creation can be so fallen. Why is it that a perfectly good God can make a perfectly good creation, and yet there are things like leukemia and tidal waves and hurt and pain in our lives today? Um, And we're talking about that in a second. But before I do that, I I just want to acknowledge there's a lot in Genesis 1 and 2 that we didn't cover. Um, And so if you really would love to think more about science and faith issues, if you'd love to think more about environmentalism issues or care for animals issues, uh, if you'd like to think more about how the creation story gives us a mandate to lead or to care uh, for others, if you want to think more about how the creation story reflects on uh, messages about gender, sexuality, marriage, and family, or humanity's relationship with work, those are all important things for you to reflect on with God. We just can't do them in the sermon today. Um, But uh, if you have any lessons from that that you'd like to to share with your life group or you'd like to share with me, I'd be happy to talk with you about that later. All right, well, what what I want to spend the last few minutes on is Genesis 3. How did such a good creation become so bent? You know, if, if a good, perfect God made a good, wonderful creation, how did it become so messed up? You know, the end of Genesis 2 ends with this uh, sad and yet hopeful depiction of what was lost. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Or some translations say they were naked and they were not afraid. And we read that and it sounds, oh, that's wonderful. You know, that's what I would want. And yet that's so not life, right? How is that possible? It's because the goodness of creation was corrupted by the sinful choices of humanity both then and continuing now. Because as Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're confronted with this temptation. And, and I'm going to tell, tell you guys that the Adam and Eve story here, and what I, what I hope you will take away from this, is our own capacity for sin as well. Sometimes we read the story and we think, Adam and Eve, you messed it up for all of us. All right, well, true, but also you and I do stuff like this all the time. And, and there can be a mythic quality. You know, there's the serpent, there's the apple. We've seen it in medieval art, and it can feel very other from us. But I think the story that you hear here, that you listen to here, um, is very similar to your story and my story from this week. So the serpent comes uh, to Eve and questions God's goodness. And here's Eve's response in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die, or, and then you might die. How is Adam and Eve's response to sin similar to ours? Well, for starters, their response to temptation is too often similar to ours, right? They begin by questioning God's goodness. They created their, Eve creates her own rules that she adds into this situation, right? God never said anything about not touching the tree, but she's added that as her own boundary marker, And then she's minimized sin, which we often do as well. She's minimized the consequences. God told her if she ate of the tree, she would surely die. And her paraphrase is, if I eat of it, I might die. And we see that she's willing to minimize the consequences of sin in verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, 
that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What a simple, mundane, and tragic description of sin. To focus only on what we get, to ignore the consequences of what we're going to lose. And I, I, in some ways, I love this description of sin because it matches my experience, and I imagine yours as well. We're heard, we, can't, we hear that we can't do something, that there's going to be severe consequences if we do. And then like Eve, we say, you know what, that looks good. I want to do that. I want to try that. And we do it, and nothing happens at first. Right? There is no lightning bolt from heaven. Like, this is not Zeus. Right? There's no immediate consequences. And we're fooled into thinking, if there aren't immediate consequences, then there aren't consequences. And so we do something for the first time and nothing seems to happen, right? And we sin in such a way and we think there's going to be some fire from heaven and it doesn't come. Um, we watch pornography and it doesn't seem to result in any pain that we can see and so we keep doing it. We have an affair and no one finds out and we think it's not that big a deal. We gossip about someone and it seems to make us friends, not cost us friends. We continue in a path of self-destruction or destruction towards others, and it doesn't seem like there's any harm that comes as a result of it. The consequences that Eve had been warned about by God don't immediately come, and so there's a temptation for her, as for us, to think that they aren't real. And so, like Eve, we follow in the same pattern. And the sin, the effects of sin have a profound impact on her life, on Adam's life, and on our life. For Eve, the consequences will come when God returns. For us, the consequences will come maybe in this life, maybe in the life to come. Um, but for Eve, they take on a very important pattern for Adam as well, that she goes into a place of shame, and then into a place of hiding, and then into a place of blame, and ultimately alienation. And that's our experience with sin as well. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What a funny approach to trying to hide from God, right? To try to use God's creation to hide from him and to hide from one another. And yet, don't we do that, right? We experience shame, and so we try to hide from each other. We try to cover. We try to pretend like there's nothing to be embarrassed about. And so they don't just hide from each other. They try to hide from God. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Right, the garden that God has made, the creation he's made, and they try to hide themselves from him. Now, I know this has been depicted in a lot of storybooks and artwork that you've seen over the years, and so it's hard to sort of remove that past experience from our listening to the story. But, but I hope that you hear in there something that maybe you've done or that I've done, which is to try to hide from God and hide from others and as, as a way to try to deal with our sin. But does it work? Of course it doesn't work. Um, there's no success that comes from trying to hide. It doesn't work to hide from God, and it doesn't work to hide from each other, at least not ultimately. Um, and Eve and Adam will harden their hearts towards God rather than seek his forgiveness. Look at verse 12. The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Sin has this effect on our soul that we harden ourselves towards God rather than seeking him for forgiveness and ultimately blaming and alienating ourselves. Aren't you glad you came to church? This is so uplifting, isn't it? 
shame, hiding, blame, alienation. And that's often how we experience this world and the pain that comes as a result of that. We experience this world as being marked by the things that we were intended to do but twisted. So the woman is told in verse 16 that she still will experience childbirth, but now it will be in pain. The man's told that he'll experience work still, but it'll be in pain. Um, the woman says she'll still be in relationship, but it'll be marked by oppression rather than mutual edification. Um, and we, that's how we experience this world, as marked by some version of how it was meant to be, but not ultimately how it was meant to be. And finally, in verse 19, we're told that the results of our sin will be death itself. That we're creatures who tried to become like God only to be reminded that we're going to return to the dust. Well, what can we take from this that's helpful for us? Um, Genesis 1 to 3 is at one time the most encouraging passage because it reminds us of the goodness of creation and also the most sobering because it shows us how much our sin has corrupted what had God had made to be a good world. And so as we take communion, we want to be reminded of the goodness of what God has made. And specifically, we want to be reminded of the way that oppression uh, that we experience as unfair ultimately finds its fulfillment in the cross. See, when we take communion, we're reminded that Jesus' death on the cross for our sins is the ultimate act of unfair consequences. Our experience of shame and of hiding is met not with our paying for it, but Christ paying for it. The, the failures of the fallenness of this world, the failures and fallenness of this world are understood when we look at what Jesus experienced on the cross for our behalf. Our experiences of shame around other people and around God, the hardness of our heart that comes from sin, the painful realities of sin that we can never avoid, we look at those and we see the way that Jesus experienced all of that undeservedly on the cross. Um, this creation story is not the end of the story, of course, right? The, the Bible has a lot left to go of God showing himself to us, showing the way that he has uh, carried out his plan of salvation for our benefit and for our good. That God is in the garden looking for Adam and Eve is a foreshadow of the way that he'll come in the person of Jesus Christ looking for you and for me. And this understanding of the creation and fall of the world helps us as we live as disciples of Jesus today. It helps us to celebrate the, God, the good that God has put into this world. It helps us acknowledge the way that our sin has corrupted it and to look forward to the way that Jesus will reconcile all things to himself. Well, we're going to take communion together here in a minute. Um, if, are you guys good with the slides? I see a lot of people hanging out at the sideboard. No, you want me to keep talking? No, all right. Um, as we're going to take communion here in a minute, uh, I want to hope that that you guys will hold some of the messages from Genesis 1 to 3 as we come to communion. Communion is a reminder that we were made to be in communion with God, to be connected to God. That's what we were intended to be uh, in our life. And as we take communion, we're reminded that we took and ate something else in rebellion against God. We, we through Adam and Eve, decided that we wanted to be God rather than serve God. And so as we take communion, it's an act of humility to come back to him and say, God, this, I want the bread and the cup, not the apple. I want to turn towards you, not away from you. And it's also a reminder that the pain of the fall is taken on by Jesus himself on the cross and that it's his death and resurrection that we avail ourselves of and are reminded of uh, on, on, as we take communion this morning. Well, if those who are assisting with communion could come forward at this time, 
uh, we're going to um, have a couple words of instruction. The way we do it in January each year is that uh, we'll ask you guys to come forward, and uh, there'll be people here with the bread and the cup. This half of the room will come down this side. This half of the room will come down this side. And uh, after you've taken the bread and eaten it, taken the cup and drinking it, uh, Jason and Greg will lead a small group of you guys through a very brief prayer, um, just as a chance to dedicate this year to God. Um, if you don't want to take communion, if you're, if you're not sure where you are with God yet, um, we're still glad that you're here and, and, and grateful that you joined us for worship this morning. Um, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. He said, this is my body.